This is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. This is an evening lecture on the 22nd of October, 2023. I'm uh, taping this lecture as the sky darkens with clouds and because it's becoming night and the forest around me disappears and basically it's like the trees are protecting this cabin I live in um, because I no longer visualize them as individual um, living species, but really as a forest. If you ever notice that, but when things get dark, the individualization of all events sort of becomes um, aggregated. And that aggregation then becomes, uh, basically, when we're talking about nightfall with no um, commercial lighting we don't i don't live anywhere uh, that has street lights or anything like that then what it means is that it's a component of darkness that actually feels quite comfortable okay so uh, with that in mind <clears throat> halloween is coming soon so in fact it's the order of that season and i kind of like halloween for lots of reasons i like all saints day and all souls day actually better than halloween but we can leave that for another discussion. What I want to talk about is how I freely will to process this universe. And, of course, that includes the experience of all the events I've studied and all the events that I have not studied very well or not at all. So before we get into this, let's review some terms Terms that I use regularly, but we'll just review them. Logos, for example, that's a Greek term. It's a term basically for reason. And another way of looking at it, as Plato would have trans does translate it in many of his dialogues, it's giving an account or an accounting. So the verb lego is both to speak and to put together. So Plato's emphasis is on the living dialogue. You see the dialectic. And that's because that's the only context one can reveal the logos or reason. So there is a Latin translation, and it is ratio. Uh, it's spelled the same as ratio, but it doesn't mean quite the same thing. <clears throat> and in fact, because it is translated to ratio, it's led to a more strict use of the term, not necessarily for reason. And when we think about ratio, we normally think about mathematics, but we also think about the disciplines of research science and, of course, logic. And I'm uh, completely familiar with all three of those uh, genres of human endeavor. So basically, reason is the English transformation for logos. Then there's the word Sophia. And Sophia is, basically means wisdom. And for Aristotle, that becomes a virtue, an intellectual virtue. And that's contrasted with phronesis. Okay, now phronesis is practical knowledge. Sophia is intellectual knowledge. And that kind of intellectual knowledge 
makes a good life, being a good person, possible. So when we say philosophy, philosophia, it means in Greek, the love of wisdom. And then there's a couple more words to quickly run through. Pragmata, and this is another Greek term. It means these are events seen in terms of practice and not theoretical investigation. So you can see how you get the word pragmatic from that. And then there, of course, is episteme. And this is Plato's realm, and it's his word basically for knowledge. And it's a special kind of knowledge because you have to justify the knowledge with an argument. And you have to include basics of logos in the argument. Remember, giving an account. Hence, the Platonic formula is doxa plus logos. And that's the same as episteme. Okay, that's what it, another term for it. So, when at all possible, personally, I like to revert to the reductio ad absurdum when formulating uh, any new hypothetical deductions. I'm not going to get into reductio ad absurdum. You should know enough Latin to know what that terminology means. And you should also know how that's used in logical argument. I hope you do. Now, for all external events, with which I can possess some limited understanding, I'm what I would call covalently tethered to a deficiency of coherent ideology. And thus, I can be impoverished to basically conceptualize or imagine truths, either supporting or refuting any of those external events which I have limited understanding or knowledge thereof. Now, I conclude that my faculties of reason, while unlimited for a dialectical introspection, can be actually quite unimpressive when it comes to the veracity of events existentially unknown to me. Furthermore, when I do own extensive experience and contemplation of cohering events, the concepts and ideas surrounding them empower me to form reasoned judgments that, of course, are founded on truths that I believe. And indeed, I choose to only believe what I know to be true. Now, this stands as my argument for the illegitimacy of mere opinion, something that you hear a lot of, and you hear a lot of uh, why opinions matter. No, they don't. They're illegitimate. So my argument for the illegitimacy of opinion, mere opinion, which only requires un founded premises to form invalid conclusions, thus enabled by the error of unsound arguments. I, um, I make my case. Now, a dialectical analysis requires veracity in the premises, 
based on coherence and foundation. Those are some components of truth, you see. To experience and reason plus the formulation of a valid conclusion based on those premises, thus obtaining ultimately at the end of this analysis a sound argument. Now, while the elements of the events of my arguments are classical Aristotelianism, my novel contribution is what I call the primacy of belief. So in order for me to profess knowledge of events, I must believe in the truths I have uncovered, thus pointing to an endojective reality. Now, think about, think about this way. If an electromagnetic field describes a phenomena in a space between two or more events, which have properties of attraction or repulsion that are signified by either an electrical current or a magnetic moment, then the waves and the particles that travel through that field are free to interact with any other electromagnetic phenomena they can encounter as a function of their size, their distribution, their direction, magnitude, and, of course, very important in chemistry, charge density. Okay, okay so the field itself can be composed of matter or exist as a vacuum devoid of all mass, but still with the potential to obtain light in the form of photons, discrete units of light or photons, right? Thus, electrons and the components of the atomic nucleus, as well as the emission of light and the generation of heat, all obviously play a role in the withholding of or apprehension of the electromagnetic spectrum. Now, given these basic principles that I have interpreted via ascertaining writings by J. Clerk Maxwell, I can assume that any such electromagnetic field can and indeed will exert a force on any other such field or indeed on any other matter in motion, that's an event, right? As well as the energy that matter in motion may interconvert. E equals mc squared, after all. Now, the only objection I have for such an assumption, because I always am thinking reductio ad absurdum, right? The only objection I have for such an assumption involves the requirement that all such electromagnetic fields must have, that's a modal category, right? Must have universal and necessary conditions a priori that cohere with the properties and the, the principles of such a field. So 
to refute that objection, it is necessary to assert something. And what are we asserting? Certainty. However, since uncertainty is the universal and what I call necessary solvent of existence, its subset of all things that at least temporarily behave certainly may not apply to the electromagnetic field. Therefore, prudence requires that I allow electromagnetic field theory only according to observed and further measured phenomena. And remember, phenomena is what I can sense with my collected five senses, right? However, there's always a however. Since uncertainty reigns supreme, I have asserted that my best answer for the occurrence, indeed the existence of, for example, the electromagnetic field, is that I can allow for its ontological eventualism if I assent to grant it with, wait for it, my free choice of the will. Now, in this way, I'm prepared to do what I call an endojectification for the electromagnetic field theory. Now, endojectification, you heard me earlier say endojective. And I know if you listen to my lectures, you know that I've basically created that term. And now I'm going to remind you what it is. This is my term for that event, which is owned intellectually by an existing individual. And that Latin root, of course, ject is thrown, is the word thrown in English, is added to the Greek word endo, which is inside. Okay? So endojective would be inside thrown, right? So I suggest the term interjective be the new substitute for the otherwise ambiguous, I mean completely ambiguous, epistemological and metaphysical use of the term subjective, which sounds like, oh, it's a rarefied and uh, aspect of nature that only I must obtain. That's what subjective normally sounds like. Now, that's a point of view or a perspective, but that's not a metaphysical term, right? So I created the metaphysical term endojective. And then the opposite of that would be exojective, right? So not inside throne, but outside throne. And there are exojective things, right? Such as all of my belief that there are such things as uh, cities and states and the Pacific Ocean and Mount Rainier. They're not in front of me. They're outside of me. But I accept those as exojective realities. Because for some of those things, in fact, all the things I just mentioned, I've seen them, I've experienced them. Okay? Which is one of the reasons that belief may reign. Right? Now, for example, now I've talked about this before in a chemical reaction where A plus B goes to C plus D. The rate is K 
bracket a to the first power, bracket b to the first power. Now, what's k? Okay, that's the proportionality constant. Now, in entomology, remember we call that the rate constant, and the exponents are the coefficients of the balanced equation. And here we can talk about the order of the reaction. And the order of the reaction is the sum of the exponents, or 1 plus 1 equals 2. The reaction is actually first order with respect to bracket A, substance A, or event A. And it's first order with respect to event B, or substrate B. But second order overall, because 1 plus 1 equals 2, you see. Now, radioactive decay. Radioactive decay is a simple first-order reaction with respect to the radionucleotide. For example, think of P32. P32 generates a positron, a gamma ray, plus silicon. Okay. Got it? Now, zero-order reactions, such as those that are supposedly served by catalysts, are found, of course, in biochemistry. What are good catalysts in biochemistry? Enzymes. Now, in biochemistry, that's where the concentration of the substrate so far exceeds the amount of the enzyme that the rate of the reaction doesn't depend on the concentration any longer. So there we say the rate equals K bracket A to raised to the zero. And that simply would then equal K. Right? See? Now, whether the phenomena varies independently from other phenomena depends and obtains a series of mixed dynamic proportional derivatizations that interact sometimes necessarily and other times contingently. And what that establishes then is a possibilistic metaphysics. Okay, Best we can get. Now, because of experience, some people like to talk about probabilistic metaphysics, but I'm saying you have to bracket off experience because of the whole understanding of how we have imagination. Imagination allows you to think of something that's not there. And therefore, it's only possible, not probable, at least in terms of my meaning of those terms, right? At the, especially, especially at the mathematical level, right? unknowns and such. So we could take a page from pharmacokinetics to draw out all the significant signification. And why don't we do it? Drug administration, including the dose and interval of time between dosing, follows some general principles. Most drugs follow first-order kinetics with the concentration of the drug as measured conveniently in the serum is described as having a certain, you know the term, half-life. So pharmaceutical elimination, which is the working concept that follows that principle of first-order kinetics, recognizes that most drugs are metabolized at a rate that's dependent on two variables, two general categorical variables, time and concentration, or we'll use the pharmaceutical term, dose. So it's how we generate the half-life of a drug in the body, right? how it's done. 
So first order kinetics allows a progression wherein after each passage of time, time that you describe, the event increases or decreases by one half. So first order kinetics is both dose and time dependent. For example, when a patient is administered an antibiotic, let's say it is a floral isoquinone at a dose of uh, 250 milligrams. After the first hour, the plasma concentration would be what? It would be 125 milligram. That's plasma or serum concentration, okay? Following hour, 62.5 milligram. After the third hour, 31.25 milligram, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, for comparison, zero-order kinetics is independent of the initial concentration and would have a constant rate of increase or decrease of the event drug removal from serum. Okay? So let's get creative and lend this discussion to an analysis of something that is really significant especially when we were talking in these biomedical portraits. Now, let me check my time. We're doing all right. Okay. Okay, what's, what's significant that I want to bring up then? At the onset, I have to point out that we do not discuss the half-death of anything. So half-life is a common term. Indeed, it's overused and I would argue, especially when I read a lot of these papers that I deliver to you, when that term is used, it's often incorrectly or inappropriately used. Now, according to the preceding descriptive relationships I've gone through, you see, I'm generating my dialectical right, argument. I might argue that death, as related to the rate of death of an individual, would be first order. Why? Well, it depends upon the event of one existing individual, for example, me. Now, this is contrasted to bracket life, which could be described as a zero-order reaction since there are so many individual living events that occur even within an existing individual's experience or within the individual's biochemical pathways that keep him alive, the rate of living, okay, if there's such a thing, does not depend on the concentration of those events. And thus, because there, there's so many of them, right, as I said, flood the system, th therefore it's zero order. Now, but, but you could argue, again, on good logical grounds, I think, that life is also just one existing individual as a self, and so its rate of disappearance is just as first order as death itself. Okay? Also, you could argue that both are zero order with the same analogizing reasoning. But can we say that death is zero order and life first order? Okay. Well, what would that entail? What would that what would we require for that argument? We would require that death as an event 
would have to be an abundantly high probability all of the time, all the delta T. And I argued, and I still argue, that can't be found. So consider variables like age, very, very young or very, very old, or only very young or very old or young and old, right? Think of all of the spectrum between all those terms. Or perhaps even think about reaction conditions, such as participating in a firefight, right? Versus what's happening when you're near a fireplace. <laughs> but again, wouldn't life also fit that scenario? Maybe not. Obviously, life keeps living until death, while death doesn't keep dying until life. Well, you can think about afterlife, but I think that I'll keep it free from this discussion because that involves neither life as defined in biological terms or death as defined by the end of said individual biology. So maybe the entire project of analyzing life and death according to the order of reaction is absolutely meaningless. I'm just, you know, I'm just doing this for nothing other than uh, using my mind to consider all of my arguments and trying to find where my arguments fail. But still, that doesn't seem quite correct either, because since life is governed by rate change, but death simply isn't. So you cannot be dead while you are living, but you are alive while you are living. And there's no rational principle. And I've said this many times before. No rational principle or nominative deathing. Okay, And I argue dying can't be substituted here. And it's formally a misnomer anyway, since while you may be dying of an illness, you're not dead, but rather, while you have this illness, you're very much alive. Okay, so now, in concreto with this discussion, what this, I believe, believe collectively obtains is an axis of judgment for each existing individual. Not only are we free to choose what we will, while living, but also we are inwardly, that endojective component, encouraged to judge the authenticity of that agency. What agency? Free will. So we're free to choose to live our lives teleologically, you know, towards a goal, as if in the aggregate, it was one very impressive reaction mechanism. So an event ontology where the denominator time is itself an unknown variable, of course, until death, that sets the eschaton. What then matters are the choices we make and the acceptance of the responsibility we must bear for each of our judgments, however large, 
however small. And we have, fortunately, the faculties of reason to provide a judgment upon ourselves during the process of this living. And we can, upon evaluation and hopefully circumspection, change our understanding, change what we call what we know. And we can do it as many times as we choose, all the way until we can't choose any longer. Death. And I think this is what it means to learn and gain knowledge. Okay? I think that's the fundamental process we're talking about here. And that's why I think it's fair to bring it up in authentic biochemistry. Now, I've got more to say on the subject, but I'm uh, almost out of time, so I'm going to stop here. Hopefully you enjoyed this. These are um, ideas that I've formulated at different times and in different ways, both in writing and in lecture uh, on the podcast and then also an open lecture over the years. And I, the reason I share these with you is, is not to just talk about you know, general philosophy or general uh, metaphysics or certainly uh, discrete epistemology. It's so that you may consider using the um, wherewithal of deep logical intellection when you are examining the scientific literature. Because when you do that, you're more than likely be, be able to learn true knowledge versus that which it might just be mere opinion. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry. Bye for now.